50 years since that day in June 1968 when Robert F. Kennedy was gunned down at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, California. Tonight, I'll go over the life and the death of RFK. I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So tonight, Islanders, we go back in time to the life and death of Robert F. Kennedy, family man, politician, visionary, who was gunned down this week, June the 5th, 50 years ago, at the Ambassador Hotel, Los Angeles, California. Assassinated by 24-year-old Palestinian Sirhan Sirhan, just four and a half years after his brother, John F. Kennedy, was killed in 1963. It's going to be hard to fit into one episode all that Robert achieved in his short life and the more I researched his life, the more I realised what a great loss he was to humanity. So first up, let me give you a bit of background on Robert or Bobby as he was known and how he rose up to almost the highest office in the US of A. Robert Francis Kennedy, born November the 20th, 1925, at Brookline, Massachusetts, to Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., a politician and businessman, and Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy, a socialite and philanthropist. Joseph Sr. and Rose, they'd have nine children in all. Joseph Jr., John... Rose, Kathleen, Eunice, Patricia, Robert, Jean and Edward. The family were descended from Catholic Irish immigrants and Joseph Sr. would become a prominent Irish figure in the Democratic Party. Now Joseph Sr. was US Ambassador to the UK and upon stepping down from this position in 1940, Joseph focused his attention, connections and money on his oldest son, Joseph Jr., to enter politics and try to become president. However, this would not be as Joseph would be killed in World War II. Joseph Sr. then turned on his often bedridden son, John F. Kennedy, to take over from Joseph Jr., and get him into politics with a view to becoming president. But let's get back to Robert. Robert attended Riverdale Country School from kindergarten to his second grade, and then on to Bronxville Public School from third grade to fifth grade. Actually, he repeated third grade, with one of his teachers commenting that it was hard for him to finish his work sometimes. Somehow, I don't think this was because he was stupid. I reckon he was daydreaming. 
daydreaming of something bigger and better than third grade classes. Robert was back at Riverdale for sixth grade. In 1938, Joseph Sr. was appointed ambassador to the UK and later in the year, Robert and his mother, plus the four younger kids, sailed to England to join him. Robert attended the private Gibbs School for Boys in London for 7th grade. Now all this moving around meant he would have to make new friends. And he was a quiet kind of kid, but he didn't mind being alone. At just 13 years of age, he would give his first public speech at the placing of a cornerstone for a youth club in England. Just before Second World War broke out in 1939, Bobby returned to the US and began 8th grade at St Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire. Now Joseph Sr. wanted Bobby to go there, but Rose did not. And as Joseph Sr. was in London, she took him out of the school, which was a Protestant school, and enrolled him in Portsmouth Priory School, which was a Benedictine Catholic boarding school. Now, he would finish grade 8 through to 10. Now, good on you, Rose. He would perform just so-so at Portsmouth Priory School, although he did excel in history. In September 1942, Bobby transferred to Milton Academy in Milton, Massachusetts for 11th and 12th grades. Here he would meet David Hackett, who admired Robert for his determination in bypassing his shortcomings and putting in the effort to overcome anything that did not come easy, such as athletics, studies and success with the girls. David described themselves as misfits and commented that Robert had an unwillingness to conform to how others acted even if doing so meant not being accepted. So, from an early age, Robert looks to have a strong moral compass. He hated bullies and also hated dirty jokes. Just for the record, my lovely English teacher in high school, Miss Jones, told me I was crude, rude and unrefined. Thank you, ma'am. Lucky I was. Anyway, let's get back So Robert has been shifted around a lot. His school record is not the greatest but improving. He loves history and has an instinctual sense of justice and a fine moral compass. Joseph Sr. would call him the runt of the family. And when told that his son was a fine, generous little boy, Joseph Sr. replied that he didn't know where he got that from. Good on you, Joe. Eventually, Joe came around and realised that Robert was as tough as nails and more like him than the other kids. So in 1944, Robert joined the Navy Reserves as a seaman apprentice. He was released from active duty in March 1944 when he left Milton Academy early to report to the V-12 Navy College Training Program at Harvard College in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
Now, the V12 Navy College training program was designed to supplement the force of commissioned officers in the United States Navy during World War II. While not being in action, Robert felt like a draft dodger, which frustrated him. And in August 1944, his brother Joseph Jr. was killed when his bomber exploded during a voluntary mission called Operation Aphrodite. Now, this operation was where they would strip out old bombers, fill them with explosives, get them into the air, and then the pilot and co-pilot would parachute out while the plane was then remotely controlled into the target. I mean, crazy shit indeed. On December the 15th, 1945, the US Navy commissioned the destroyer USS Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. and shortly thereafter granted Robert's request to be released from naval officer training to serve aboard Kennedy starting on February the 1st, 1946 as a seaman apprentice on the ship's shakedown cruise in the Caribbean. On May the 30th, 1946, he received his honourable discharge from the Navy. And, you know, how's that? His brother getting a ship named after him. Money and power. So it's 1946, and 21-year-old Robert Kennedy goes to Harvard. He was able to get on the varsity footy team, where he scored a touchdown in his first game, but then broke his leg in practice. He earned his varsity letter when his coach sent him in wearing a cast during the last minutes of a game against Yale. Now, the varsity letter is an award for excellence in any school activity. Nowadays, everyone gets a trophy. Anyway, Robert also got a varsity letter the next season. Now, this is where Robert starts to help out big bro John F. for the representative seat vacated by James Curley. Robert graduated from Harvard in 1948 with a bachelor's degree in political science. After graduation, he sailed with a friend to Europe and the Middle East, sending several stories to the Boston Post of which four were critical of British policy on Palestine and praised the Jewish people he met there, calling them hardy and tough. He held out some hope after seeing Arabs and Jews working side by side, but in the end feared that the hatred between the groups was too strong and would lead to a war. Well, we know so well that shit's still going down over there. In September 1948, he enrolled at the University of Virginia School of Law in Charlottesville, and in 1950, he married Ethel Skakel at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Greenwich, Connecticut. In 1951, he not only graduated law school, but his first child, Kathleen, was born. Robert Kennedy studied and passed the Massachusetts Bar Exam later in 1951. In October 1951, 
he embarked on a seven-week Asian trip with his brother John, who was then Massachusetts' 11th District Congressman, and their sister Patricia to Israel, India, Pakistan, Vietnam and Japan. In December 1952, Kennedy was appointed by family friend Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy as Assistant Counsel of the U.S. Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. But Robert didn't like McCarthy's aggressive methods of gathering intelligence on suspected communists. He resigned in July 1953, but retained a fondness for McCarthy. Robert went on to work as an aide to Adlai Stevenson during the 1956 presidential election, which helped him learn how national campaigns work, but in the end thought he sucked, so voted for Dwight D. Eisenhower. From 1957 to 59, Robert served as the chief counsel to the Senate's McClellan Committee under Chairman John L. McClellan. Kennedy was given authority over testimony scheduling, areas of investigation and witness questioning. This is where Kennedy squared off with Teamsters Union President Jimmy Hoffa during the antagonistic argument that marked Hoffa's testimony. Hoffa. Where's Hoffa now? Anyway, Robert left the committee in late 1959 to run his JFK presidential campaign. During the campaign, Robert would often give stump speeches which really sharpened up his act. In October 1960, Robert helped gain the release of Martin Luther King Jr., after he violated a probation order when he was protesting at a whites-only snack bar. Hard to believe, this was only 58 years or so ago. With JFK winning the 1960 presidential election, Robert was appointed Attorney General at age 35. Some said he had no experience and was unqualified. JFK joked, I can't see that it's wrong to give him a little legal experience before he goes out to practice law. The reality is that Robert did have a lot of experience and JFK was able to trust him totally. As Attorney General, Robert got stuck into organised crime and the mafia with convictions rising 800% in his term. This did not make him and JFK many friends. Robert was also committed to civil rights as he undertook the most energetic and persistent desegregation of the administration that Washington had ever experienced. He demanded that every area of government begin recruiting realistic levels of black and other ethnic workers going so far as to criticise Vice President Johnson for his failure to desegregate his own office staff. Asked in an interview in May 1962, what do you see as the big problem ahead for you? Is it crime or internal security? Kennedy replied, 
civil rights. As his brother's confidant, Robert oversaw the CIA's anti-Castro activities after the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. He also helped develop the strategy to blockade Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis, instead of initiating a military strike that might have led to nuclear war. On the last night of the Cuban Missile Crisis, JFK was so grateful for Robert's work in averting nuclear war that he summed it up by saying, Thank God for Bobby. Robert was home the day President Kennedy was killed in Dallas. He was called by J. Edgar Hoover that his brother had been shot and Hoover hung up before he could ask any questions. What an arsehole thing to do. Robert then called McGeorge Bundy at the White House to change all the locks on the President's files. He ordered the Secret Service to dismantle the Oval Office and the Cabinet Room's secret taping systems. He scheduled a meeting with CIA Director John McCone and asked if the CIA had any involvement in his brother's death. McCone denied it. Later, he would be called by Tazewell Shepard informing him that his brother had passed away. Robert would later say that he felt Hoover had enjoyed telling him the news. After the 10-month Warren report into JFK's death, Robert issued a statement. As I said in Poland last summer, I'm convinced Oswald was solely responsible for what happened and that he did not have any outside help or assistance. He was a malcontent who could not get along here or in the Soviet Union. He added, I have not read the report, nor do I intend to, but I've been briefed on it and I am completely satisfied that the Commission investigated every lead and examined every piece of evidence. The Commission's inquiry was thorough and conscientious. In reality, he thought the investigation was shoddy, will not endorse it, but that he's unwilling to criticise it and thereby reopen the whole tragic business. There are many conspiracy theories in regards to the JFK assassination and they will have to wait for another time. Let's just say that the Kennedys had made enemies of a lot of people and although these people may have been enemies with each other, it's not unfathomable that they would unite in order to be rid of their common foe. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So this left Lyndon B. Johnson as the new president until the next election in 1964. Many wanted Robert for vice president with Johnson. However, others advised him to wait and to develop his own base of supporters. Robert said... It's too early for me to even think about 64 because I don't know whether I want to have any part of these people. If they don't fulfil and follow out my brother's program, I don't want to have anything to do with them. So as it came to be, Robert decided to run for a seat in the US Senate. His opponent in the 1964 race 
was Republican incumbent Kenneth Keating, who attempted to portray Kennedy as an arrogant carpetbagger. Carpetbagger. Okay, now that is a derogatory term for individuals, especially politicians, who move to different states, districts or areas for economic or political gain. In this case, Keating was having a go at Kennedy for not growing up in New York and only moving there for political gain. Okay. Robert hit back, saying Keating had not done much of anything constructive at all. So, Robert ended up winning the November election and Lyndon B. Johnson became president. Now, from being Attorney General and now being in the Senate, this did frustrate Robert a bit, as now he was one vote amongst many rather than being the president's right-hand man. Robert's little bro, Ted, was actually his senior in the Senate, and this, this did help Robert find his way. Senator Fred Harris, one of Robert's best friend in the Senate, said, Kennedy was intense about matters and issues which concerned him. Kennedy gained a reputation in the Senate of being well prepared for debate. However, his tendency to speak to other senators in a more blunt fashion caused him to be unpopular with many of his colleagues. Now, this I really like this. And I think this is part of who Robert Kennedy became. And I admire this the most about him. I mean, sometimes to get something done, you need to cut the bullshit and get straight to the point. Being diplomatic sometimes is the biggest barrier to getting shit done. Sometimes you need to get the elephant in the room to break a few eggs to make the omelette. Anyway, during his time in the Senate, Robert advocated gun control, which is still a very hot topic today. That was with the Gun Control Act of 1968 being passed. On February 8, 1966, Kennedy urged the United States to pledge that it would not be the first country to use nuclear weapons against countries that did not have them, noting that China had made the pledge and the Soviet Union indicated it was also willing to do so. In June 1966, he visited apartheid-era South Africa, accompanied by his wife Ethel and a few aides. At the University of Cape Town, he delivered the annual Day of Affirmation Address on the 6th of June 1966. This would become to be known as the Ripple of Hope speech. I've cut just a section out, but I urge you to Google some other of Robert's speeches, including this one, as they are so inspirational. This is a day of affirmation, a celebration of liberty. We stand here in the name of freedom. At the heart of that Western freedom and democracy is the belief that the individual man, the child of God, is the touchstone of value, and all society, all groups and states exist 
for that person's benefit. Therefore, the enlargement of liberty for individual human beings must be the supreme goal and the abiding practice of any Western society. The first element of this individual liberty is the freedom of speech, the right to express and communicate ideas, to set oneself apart from the dumb beasts of field and forest, the right to recall governments to their duties and to their obligations. Above all, the right to affirm one's membership and allegiance to the body politic, to society, to the men with whom we share our land, our heritage, and our children's future. Hand in hand with freedom of speech goes the power to be heard, to share in the decisions of government which shape men's lives. Everything that makes man's life worthwhile, family, work, education, a place to rear one's children and a place to rest one's head, all this depends on the decisions of government. All can be swept away by a government which does not heed the demands of its people, and I mean all of its people. Therefore, the essential humanity of man can be protected and preserved only where government must answer, not just to the wealthy, not just to those of a particular religion, not just to those of a particular race, but to all of the people. Even government by the consent of the governed, as in our own constitution, must be limited in its power to act against its people, so that there may be no interference with the right to worship, but also no interference with the security of the home, no arbitrary imposition of pains or penalties on an ordinary citizen by officials high or low, no restriction on the freedom of men to seek education or to seek work or opportunity of any kind so that each man may become all that he is capable of becoming. <laughs> Thousands of Peace Corps volunteers are making a difference in the isolated villages in the city slums of dozens of countries. Thousands of unknown men and women in Europe resisted the occupation of the Nazis and many die, but all added to the ultimate strength and freedom of their countries. It is from numberless, numberless diverse acts of courage such as these that the belief that human history is thus shaped. Each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring, those ripples build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. It's interesting how relevant that speech is today. And we've come a long way since then, but how far could we have come and where should we be now? Anyway, Robert as a senator, 
help the disaffected, the impoverished and the excluded, aligning himself with leaders of the civil rights struggle and social justice campaigners. He supported desegregation busing, integration of all public facilities, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and anti-poverty social programs to increase education, offer opportunities for employment and provide health care for African Americans. Consistent with President Kennedy's Alliance for Progress, he also placed increasing emphasis on human rights as a central focus of US foreign policy. Now at this time, the war in Vietnam was escalating. Robert had spent several years travelling the world discussing a solution to the conflict. Robert outlined a three-point plan to end the war, which included suspending the US bombing of North Vietnam and the eventual withdrawal of American and North Vietnamese soldiers from South Vietnam. His view was that there were three options. One, to increase the US commitment and send more and more troops. The second option was to to surrender and walk away from the problem. Or the third option, to sit down and negotiate, to bring both the North and South Vietnamese officials together to find a way that they can work together for their country, for their people, an honourable peace. He said, no matter how much you bomb the North, you will not defeat the people. Eventually, on March the 16th, 1968, Robert would announce he would run for President of the United States. And as I think most of us know, there is a year-long process of campaigning across the country to be selected as your party's candidate. He announced his running just after the Tet Offensive in Vietnam in February 1968, after getting a letter from journalist Pete Hamill that said poor people kept pictures of President Kennedy on their walls and that he had an obligation of staying true to whatever it was that put those pictures on those walls. I'll just put in another clip of one of Robert's speeches he made about Vietnam while running for pre-selection. In these past 16 days, I have been in 18 states, north, south, east and west. In Alabama and in Watts, in New York and in New Mexico, in Washington, D.C. and in Washington State, Wherever I went, I found Americans of all ages and colors and political beliefs deeply desirous of peace in Vietnam and reconciliation at home. Despite all the discord and dispirit, despite all of the extremists and their actions, there remains in this country today an enormous reservoir of hope and goodwill. Americans want to move forward. They want to better their communities, to make this country not only more livable for all Americans, but a shining example for all of the world. To free their energies and progress at home, they want peace in Vietnam. 
produced not by surrender of either side, but by a negotiated settlement that realistically takes into account as quickly as possible the need for all Vietnamese and only Vietnamese to determine the future of their own country. I have long urged that we make the first step in this direction by a de-escalation of our military effort, halting the bombing of the North, insisting upon reforms in the South, and pressing for negotiations with all parties looking toward a transfer of the present conflict from the military to the political arena. I am hopeful that the actions announced by the President will be proved to be a step toward peace. It is obviously a critical time, and I think it would be inappropriate to offer any detailed comments regarding those actions at this time. As we move toward a political resolution of the agony of Vietnam, we can start to redirect our national energies and resources toward the vital problems of our own national community. The crisis of our cities, the tension among our races, the complexities of a society once so rich and so deprived, all these call urgently for the best efforts of all Americans all across this country. We must reach across the false barriers that divide us from brothers and from countrymen to seek and find peace abroad, reconciliation at home, and the participation in the life of our country that is the deepest desire of the American people and the truest expression of our national goals. In this spirit, I will continue my campaign for the presidency of the United States. Well, as time was to tell, the escalation of the conflict didn't work and the war was to drag on for many more years and take many more lives. Robert ran on a platform of racial and economic justice, non-aggression in foreign policy, decentralisation of power and social change. Robert wanted to engage with the young as he saw them as being the future of a reinvigorated American society based on partnership and equality. Then came April the 4th, 1968. Martin Luther King Jr. had just been assassinated. Robert was on the campaign trail in Indianapolis. I'll play a clip of the speech in which contains not only the announcement of MLK Jr.'s death, but also it's the first time Robert speaks publicly about his brother's death. Here you go. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice 
between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization, black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, my, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. And he once wrote, Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own de despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will, and we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With and what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, 
to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. Riots broke out in 60 cities after King's death, but not in Indianapolis. Some put this down to Robert's speech. So now we come to the California primary, where Robert scored a major victory and placed him one step closer to the White House. He addressed his supporters shortly after midnight on June the 5th, 1968, in a ballroom at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, California. Leaving the ballroom after the speech, he went through the hotel kitchen after being told it was a shortcut to a press room. He did this despite being advised by his bodyguard, former FBI agent Bill Barry, to avoid the kitchen. Don't go there, Bobby. You know what happens when things are changed last minute. Anyway, in the crowded kitchen passageway, Kennedy turned to his left and shook hands with busboy Juan Romero, just as Sirhan Bishara Sirhan, a 24-year-old Palestinian, opened fire with a .22 caliber revolver. Kennedy was hit three times, once in the head and twice in the back with a fourth bullet passing through his jacket, and five other people were wounded, but they would fully recover. It took several big guys to wrestle Sirhan to the ground and get the gun out of his hands, and Sirhan, he's only a little guy. Robert lay on the ground, bleeding from behind the ear, with the busboy cradling his head. The busboy placed his rosary in Robert's hand as Robert asked him, Is everyone okay? To which Romero, the busboy, replied, Yes, everyone is okay. Robert then responded with, Then everything is going to be okay. Medical staff then arrived and as they lifted Robert onto the stretcher, he spoke his last words, Don't lift me before slipping into unconsciousness. He was rushed first to Los Angeles Central Receiving Hospital and then to the city's Good Samaritan Hospital, where he died early the next morning. Now they had the shooter as he was caught red-handed, so you would think this would be an open and shut case, which I guess it was in the end. The problem is that Sirhan said and maintains to this day that he cannot recall the incident. So Sirhan Sirhan was charged with first-degree murder. Initially, he pleaded not guilty. On February the 10th, 1969, Sirhan's lawyers made a notion in chambers to enter a plea of guilty to first-degree murder in exchange for life imprisonment and that's rather than get the death penalty. Sirhan announced to the court judge that he wanted to withdraw his original plea of not guilty in order to plead guilty as charged on all counts. When the judge asked him what he wanted to do about sentencing, 
Sirhan replied, I'll ask to be executed. Judge Walker denied the motion and stated, this court will not accept the plea. So the trial went ahead. The prosecution was able to show that just two nights before the attack on June 3, Sirhan was seen at the Ambassador Hotel apparently attempting to learn the building's layout. Evidence proved that he visited a gun range on June the 4th. Also, Sirhan's garbage collector claimed that Sirhan had told him a month before the attack of his intention to, to shoot Kennedy. Sirhan's defence counsel had hoped to show that the killing had been an impulsive act of a man with a mental deficiency. But when the judge admitted into evidence pages from three of the journal notebooks that Sirhan had kept, it was clear that the murder was not only premeditated, but also quite calculating and willful. The defence based its case primarily on the expert testimony that Sirhan was suffering from diminished capacity at the time of the murder. Sirhan was convicted on April 17, 1969 and was sentenced six days later to death in the gas chamber. Three years later, his sentence was commuted to life in prison after the death penalty was ruled a violation of California's constitution in regards to cruel and unusual punishment. Of course, there were the appeals. The defence moved for a new trial amid claims of setups, police bungles, hypnotism, brainwashing, blackmail and government conspiracies. Now, this hypnotism one is probably one of the most fascinating aspects of this whole event. Also, it is believed there was a second shooter. So, in the autopsy, there was a there was gunpowder tattooing on Robert's right ear. Now, this will only occur when the victim is shot at point-blank range. It has been established that Sirhan was at least five feet away from Robert when he fired his gun. Also, on audio recordings of the incident, there are more gunshots heard than the capacity of Sirhan's gun. Thirteen shots were heard and Sirhan's gun could only hold eight rounds. So what conspiracy theorists have come up with is that Sirhan may have been hypnotised and brainwashed beforehand as some kind of Manchurian candidate. They say that he was programmed to be triggered by an event which would put him into a trance and he would enact the mission and after he would have no memory of it or of those that programmed it in. So I'll go over the Manchurian candidate theory a bit more as it is quite interesting. It all has to do with the woman in the polka dot dress. And no, it's not Russian Tara at the podcast awards, but yes, a woman in a polka dot dress. Witnesses stated that they saw a woman with a polka dot dress in various locations around the Ambassador Hotel before and after the assassination. 
One witness, Kennedy campaign worker Sandra Serrano, reported that at around 11.30pm, she was sitting outside on a stairway that led to the embassy ballroom when a woman and two men, one whom she later stated was Sirhan, walked past her up the stairs. Serrano said that around 30 minutes later, she heard noises that sounded like the backfire of an automobile, then saw the woman and one of the men running from the scene. She stated that the woman exclaimed, We shot him. We shot him. According to Serrano, when she asked the woman to whom she referred, the woman said, Senator Kennedy. Now Serrano would admit to fabricating the story, but would later say that the LAPD wore her down during questioning and coerced her into a false retraction. Several other witnesses saw Sirhan with the girl in the polka dot dress. So what is theorised is that the girl with the polka dot dress was the trigger for Sirhan to go into a trance and shoot at Kennedy. The trigger would be a code word spoken to Sirhan by the girl in the polka dot dress and he would go into a trance. Sirhan would then fire his gun while someone else, a second gunman, made sure Robert was dead with the point-blank shot to his head. Now Sirhan is known to be able to be hypnotised extremely easily. And Darren Brown, the guy that hypnotises people on the telly for entertainment purposes, proved that you could program someone to do as Sirhan did in one of his episodes called Assassin. You should have a look at this if you can. It goes to show that you can program someone to do what they would not normally do or have a huge moral objection to do, such as killing someone. Of course, the woman in the polka dot dress was never located and so it's extremely difficult to prove this theory at all. So Robert Kennedy is dead, just a few short years after his brother John F. Kennedy. Now the thing I've taken away from all this research is that while John F. Kennedy became president and was seen as progressive and able to do so much good in the world, it was his brother Robert who helped guide and drive his brother. In the years after JFK's death, Robert, in my opinion, became a much stronger and capable politician. One that, had he become president, may have changed the world as we know it today. In fact, if JFK had run his full term and was elected for the second term, and if then Robert took over from him for the following two terms, I really wonder what the world would be like today. At the time of Robert's death, he was a father to ten children and Ethel, his wife, was pregnant with their eleventh child. We should not forget that these public officials are also people with their own families and their own ambitions. Robert showed that he was prepared to go in for the poor, disadvantaged and those discriminated against. He chose diplomacy over aggression. 
Now, Sirhan has been denied parole each time he's applied for it, and it looks like he will die in jail. However, just a few days ago, Robert Kennedy Jr. said he believes someone else shot his father and wants a new investigation. And Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, the former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, says that she agrees with her brother. She says, I think Bobby makes a compelling case. So who knows? Maybe there will be some final chapter in this case. I guess I'll finish off with a quote from Robert, which probably says it all. He said, Progress is a nice word, but change is its motivator, and change has its enemies. Robert and John sure had their enemies. Now, tonight's show really only glosses over the life and times of Robert F. Kennedy. If you can handle the length, there is an extremely detailed podcast on the subject from The Conspiracy Guys. That's into the assassination of RFK. Look look them up. It goes, I think, for about six hours. So you may listen to it in a few parts. So on to the last part of the show where we thank the new patrons of the island. Hi to Lisa, Danielle Gruel, I think it is. You'll have to send me a correction if I've got that wrong. Mia Kelly, David Young, Mackenzie Brown and Laurie Gilmore. Thank you so much for your support and thank to all, thanks to all the existing and past patrons for your support. It's very much appreciated as this is a commercial-free podcast that is totally listener-supported. If you want to become a patron of the island, just go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland where for as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron. All funds go directly back to the island. You can also do a one-off payment via PayPal and you can do that by typing paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland so you can buy me a beer. If you want stickers, koozies, pins or keyrings, you need to email me directly. My email is cambo at truecrimeisland.com and I can price it up for you according to what you want and the postage. I do have $20 and $25 loot packs available and they've got the keychain, lapel pin, koozie and stickers. It also includes postage. You can buy the keychains, pins, koozies by themselves if you like. Just email me for pricing. All other merch such as t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, mugs of rage. All that's via the shop at truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Don't worry about all these addresses. If you just go to my website, which is truecrimeisland.com, there's links to merch and PayPal, everything there. Again, you don't have to spend money to support the show. You can rate, review and share the love. The more people you can tell about the show, the better. Now, if people don't know what a podcast is, grab their phone and download the apps. 
join the Facebook group. Just search for True Crime Island and join in the chat. Join the closed group, please. That'd be great. Don't forget to check out the Twitter and Instagram. The island handle is at True Crime Island. You can join in the chat there. There's so many other podcasters on there. You'll find one you love. Hi to all the followers. Well, that's about it for tonight. And again, all our love to Maggie James. So this has been Campbell, and you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. 